Chapter 19, Part 1 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 19, Part 1. Marconi. In his autobiography, Gilbert Chesterton has set down his belief that the Marconi scandal will be seen by historians as a landmark in English history. To him personally, the revelations produced by it were a great shock and gave the death blow to all that still lingered of his belief in the Liberal Party. For the rest of his life, it may almost be called an obsession with him. In his eyes, it was so great a landmark that as others spoke of events pre- or post-war, he divided the political history of England into pre- and post-Marconi. It meant as much for his political outlook as the enclosures for his social. It is necessary to know what happened in the Marconi case if we are to understand a most important element in Chesterton's mental history. The difficulty is to know what did happen. The main lines of a very complicated bit of history have never, so far as I know, been disentangled by anyone whose only interest was to disentangle them, and the partisans have naturally tangled them more. I wrote a draft chapter after reading the 2,000-page report of the Parliamentary Committee, the 600-page report of Cecil Chesterton's trial, and masses of contemporary journalism. Then, in the circumstances I have related in the introduction, I called in my husband's aid. The rest of this chapter is mainly his. 1. What the Ministers Did The Imperial Conference of 1911 had approved the plan of a chain of state-owned wireless stations to be erected throughout the British Empire. The post office, Mr. Herbert Samuel being the postmaster general, was instructed to put the matter in hand. After consideration of competing systems, the Marconi was chosen, the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of London of which Mr. Godfrey Isaacs was managing director, was asked to tender for the work. Its tender was accepted on March 7, 1912. The main terms of the tender were as follows. The company was to erect stations in various parts of the empire at a cost to the government of £60,000 per station. These were then to be operated by the governments of the United Kingdom and the dominions and colonies concerned. And the Marconi Company was to receive 10% of the gross receipts. Their agreement was for 28 years, though the Postmaster General might terminate it at the end of 18 years. But there was one further clause. Clause 10. Allowing for termination at any time if the government should find it advantageous to use a different system. The acceptance of this tender was only the first stage. A contract had to be drawn up and nothing would be finalized till this contract had been accepted by Parliament. In fact, the contract was not completed till July 19th. On that day, it was placed on the table of the House of Commons. For the understanding of the Marconi case, the vital period is the four months of 1912 between March 7th, when the tender was accepted, and July 19th, when the contract was tabled. Let us concentrate upon that four-month period. The Postmaster General issued no statement whatever on the matter, but on March 8th, the company sent out a circular to its shareholders telling them the good news, but making the news look even better than it was by omitting all reference to Clause 10, which entitled the government to substitute some rival system at any time it pleased. The Postmaster General issued no correction because, as he said later, 
he had not been aware of the omission. Immediately after, Godfrey Isaacs left for America to consider the affairs of the American Marconi Company, capitalized at $1,600,000, of which he was a director. More than half its shares were owned by the English company. On behalf of the English company, he bought up the rights of the American company's principal rival and then sold these rights, at a profit not stated but apparently very considerable, to the American company for $1,400,000. To handle all this and allow for vast developments hoped for from this purchase and from a very favorable agreement, Godfrey Isaacs had to negotiate with Western Union. The American company was to be reorganized as a $10 million company. 2 million shares at $5 each. The American company, whose own repute in America was too low for any hope of raising money on that scale from the American public, seems to have agreed to the Godfrey Isaacs plan only on condition that the English company should guarantee the subscription. And Godfrey Isaacs made himself personally responsible for placing 500,000 shares. It should be remembered that the pound was then worth just under $5. A $5 share was worth one pound, one shilling, three pence, or one and a sixteenth pounds in English money. Godfrey Isaacs returned to England. On April 9th, he lunched with his brothers Harry and Rufus. Rufus, being attorney general in the British government, he told them of the arrangements he had made, arrangements which were not yet known to the public, and of the stock about to be issued, and offered them 100,000 shares out of the 500,000 for which he had made himself responsible, at the face value of one pound, one shilling, three pence. Rufus refused, one reason for his refusal being that the shares were not a good buy, as the prospects of the company did not warrant so large a new issue of capital. Harry took 50,000. We now come to the transactions which the public was to later lump together rather crudely as ministers gambling in Marconi's. A. On April 17th, roughly a week after the luncheon, Rufus Isaacs bought 10,000 of Harry's shares at two pounds. He made the point later that buying from Godfrey would have been improper as Godfrey was director of a company with which the government was negotiating. But it was all right to buy from Harry who had bought from Godfrey. Harry, having paid one pound, uh, one shilling, three pence, was willing to let Rufus have them for the same price, but Rufus thought it only fair to pay the higher price. This is all the more remarkable because only a week earlier he had thought these same shares bad value at roughly half the price he was now prepared to pay. Of this 10,000 shares, Rufus immediately sold 1,000 to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George and 1,000 to the master of Ellie Bank, who was chief whip of the Liberal Party then in office. It is to be noted that no money passed at this time in any of those transactions. Rufus did not pay Harry, Lloyd George, and Ellie Bank did not pay Rufus. Nor did the shares pass. Indeed, the shares did not as yet exist, as it was not till the next day, April 18th, that the American Marconi Company authorized the issue of the new capital. On the day after that, April 19th, the shares were put on the market at £3.05. That same day, they rose to £4. In the course of the day, Rufus Isaacs sold 700 shares at an average price of £3.06, six which on the face of it looks like clearing 3000 more than he had paid for all the shares and still having 3000 shares left. But he explained later that there had been pooling arrangements between himself and his brother and himself and his two friends. So that the upshot of his day's transactions was that he had sold 
2,856 of his own shares and 357 each for Lloyd George and Elibank. The triumvirate therefore still had 6,430 shares of which 1,286 belonged to Lloyd George and Elibank. Rufus' explanation boils down to this. He and Harriet arranged that whatever either sold in the course of the day should be totaled and divided in the proportion of their holdings. Rufus sold 7,000 shares, Harry 10,850, a total of 17,850. Rufus had taken one-fifth of Harry's 50,000 shares, so one-fifth of the shares sold were allotted to his, i.e. 3,570. Lloyd George and Ellie Bank had each taken a tenth of Rufus, therefore each was considered to have sold 357. On April 20th, these two sold a further 1,000 of their 1,286 shares at three pounds and five shillings per 32. B. On May 22nd, Lloyd George and Ellie Bank bought 3,000 more shares at two pounds and five shillings 32, as they were not due to deliver the shares previously sold by them at three pounds six shillings and sixpence and three pounds and five shillings 32 till June 20th. This new purchase had something the look of a bear transaction. C. In April and May, the master of Valley Bank bought 3,000 shares for the account of the Liberal Party, of whose funds he had charge. These three transactions are all that the three politicians ever admitted, and nothing more was ever proved against them. As we have seen, there was no documentary evidence of the principal transaction, the one I have called A, except that Rufus sold 7,000 shares on April 19th. In his acquiring of the shares, no broker was employed. Rufus did not pay Harry for the shares until the 6th of January, 1913, some nine months later, when the inquiry was already on. There was no evidence other than his own word that 10,000 was the number he had agreed to take or two pounds the price that he agreed to pay, or that he had bought from Harry and not Godfrey, or that the 7,000 shares he had certainly sold at a huge profit on April 19th, half were sold to Harry there was indeed no evidence that the shares were not a gift. Even on what they admitted, they had obviously acted improperly. The contract with the English Marconi Company was not yet completed. Parliament had not been informed of its terms. Parliament, therefore, had yet to decide whether it would accept or reject it. The three members of Parliament had committed two grave improprieties. One, they had purchased shares directly or at one remove, from the managing director of a company seeking a contract from Parliament, in circumstances that were practically equivalent to receiving a gift of money from him. They received shares, which the general public could not have bought till two days later, and then only at over 50% more than the politicians paid. On this count, the fact that the shares were American Marconi's made no difference. The point is that they were valuable shares sold to ministers at a special low price. This need not have been bribery, but it is a fact that one way of bribing man is to buy something from him at more than it is worth, or sell something to him at less than it is worth. H.T. Campbell of Bullet, Campbell, and Grenfell the English Marconi Company's official brokers, gave evidence before the Parliamentary Committee that it would have been impossible for the general public to buy the shares before April 19th. And, as we have seen, they opened on that day at £3 and 5 shillings. 2. 
They, and through the chief whip's action, the whole Liberal Party, though it did not know it, were financially interested in the acceptance by Parliament of the contract. For though they had not bought shares in the English company, with which the contract was being made, but with the American company, which had no direct interest in the contract, nonetheless, it would have lowered the value of the American shares if the British Parliament had rejected the Marconi system and chosen some other in preference. I may say at once that I feel no certainty that the transaction was a sinister effort to bribe ministers, but had it been, exactly the right ministers were chosen. They were the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who has charge of the nation's purse, the Attorney General, who advises upon the legality of actions proposed, the Chief Whip, who takes the party forces into the voting lobby. It was the same Chief Whip, the master of Alibank, that had carried the sale of honors to a new height in his devotion to increase his party's funds. 2. The Parliamentary Inquiry On July 19, 1912, the contract was put on the table of the House of Commons. In the ordinary course, it would have come up for a vote sometime before the end of the parliamentary session. But criticism of the contract was growing on the ground that it was too favorable to the Marconi Company and rumors were flying that members of the government had been gambling in Marconi shares, which, as we have seen, they had, though not in English Marconis. Even before the tabling of the contract, members of Parliament, notably Major Archer Shee, a Conservative, had been harrying Mr. Herbert Samuel, the Postmaster General. On July 20th, and in weekly articles following, it was attacked as a thoroughly bad contract by a writer in the Outlook, Mr. W.R. Lawson, on August 1st, a Labour member asked a question in the House about the rising price of Marconi's. The feeling that inquiry was needed was so strong that on August 6th, the last day but one of the session, the Prime Minister, who knew something of his colleague's purchase of Marconi's but never mentioned it, promised the House that the Marconi agreement would not be rushed through without full discussion. In spite of this, Herbert Samuel and Ellie Bank both tried hard to get the contract approved that day or next. When it was quite clear that Parliament would not allow this, Herbert Samuel insisted on making a general statement on the contract. He too knew of the minister's dealings in American Marconis, but did not mention them. There was no debate or division. The question of ratification or rejection was postponed till the House should meet again in October. The argument he put to Major Archer Shee, MP, was that the stations were urgently needed for imperial defense. On August 8th, Cecil Chesterton's paper, The New Witness, launched its first attack on the whole deal, though without reference to ministerial gambling in Marconi's, under the headline, The Marconi Scandal. Isaac's brother is chairman of the Marconi Company. It has therefore been secretly arranged between Isaac's and Samuel that the British people shall give the Marconi Company a very large sum of money through the agency of the said Samuel, and for the benefit of the said Isaac's. Incidentally, the monopoly that is about to be granted to Isaacs No. 2 through the ardent charity of Isaacs No. 1 and his colleague, the Postmaster General, is a monopoly involving antiquated methods, the refusal of competing tenders far cheaper and far more efficient, and the saddling of this country with corruptly purchased goods, which happen to be inferior goods. The article went on to say that these swindles were apt to occur in any country, but that England alone lacked the will to punish them. It is the lack of even a minimum standard of honor, urging even honest men to protest against such villainy, that has brought us where we are. 
In September, L.J. Max's National Review had a criticism of the contract by Major Archer Shee, MP, with editorial comment as well. In the same month, the Morning Post and the Spectator pressed for further inquiry. The October number of the National Review contained a searching criticism of the whole business and called special attention to the stock exchange gamble in American Marconi's. A few days later, on October 11th, the reassembled House of Commons held the promised debate. In the light of what we know, it is fascinating to read how nobody told a lie exactly and truth was concealed all the same. Here is Sir Rufus Isaacs. He begins by formulating the rumors against Mr. Herbert Samuel and Mr. Lloyd George and himself, but he is careful to formulate them in such a way that he can truthfully deny them. The rumors, he says, were that the ministers had dealt in the shares of a company with which the government was negotiating a contract. Never from the beginning have I had one single transaction with shares of that company. Literally true, as you see. The contract was with the English company. The shares he had bought were in the American company. He made no allusion to that purchase. Mr. Herbert Samuel, who is not accused of having purchased shares himself, but who knew of what his colleagues had done, treads the same careful line. I say that these stories that members of the cabinet, knowing the contract was in contemplation and feeling that possibly the price of shares might rise, themselves directly or indirectly bought any of those shares or took any interest in this company through any other party whatever, have not one syllable of truth in them. Neither I myself nor any of my colleagues have at any time held one shilling's worth of shares in this company, directly or indirectly and have derived one penny profit from the fluctuations in their prices. However, he promised a parliamentary committee to inquire into the whole affair. Isaacs had denied any transactions with that company, Samuel with this company. Neither had ventured to say the English company, for that would instantly have raised the question of the American company. It is an odd truth that has to be phrased so delicately. Lloyd George, the first of the ministers to speak, managed better. He flew into a rage with an interjector. The honorable member said something about the government, and he has talked about rumors. I want to know what these rumors are. If the honorable gentleman has any charge to make against the government as a whole, or against individual members of it, I think it ought to be stated openly. The reason why the government wanted a frank discussion before going to committee was because we wanted to bring here these rumors, these sinister rumors that have been passing from one foul lip to another behind the backs of the house. He sat down, still in a white heat, without having denied anything. The master of Ellibank did not deny anything either. He was not there. He was indeed no longer in the House of Commons. He had inherited the title of Lord Murray of Ellibank. He had left England in August and did not return till the inquiry was over, nor did he send any communication of any sort. As we have seen, no literal lie was told, but Parliament in the country assumed that the ministers had denied any gambling in Marconi's of any sort, and the ministers must have known that this was what their denials had been taken to mean. Rufus Isaac's son mentions a theory held by some, though he thinks there are strong arguments against it, that Rufus' silence was due to instructions from the Prime Minister, Mr. Asquith, who was not anxious to have the connection of Lloyd George with the matter disclosed. Fearing that his personal unpopularity would lead to such an exasperation of the attacks that the prestige of the whole government might be seriously impaired. Rufus Isaacs, 1st Marcus of Reading, pages 248 to 249.
On October 29th, the names were announced of the members appointed to the promised Committee of Inquiry. As usual, they represented the various parties in proportion to their numbers in the House. The Liberals were in office, supported by Irish nationalists and Labour members. Nine members of the committee, including the chairman, were from these parties. Six were Conservatives. One might have expected that the careful evasions in the House would have meant only a brief respite for the ministers who had been so economical of the truth. They would appear before the committee, and then the whole thing would emerge. But though the committee was appointed at the end of October and met three times most weeks thereafter, five months went by and no minister was called. The plain fact is that Mr. Samuel's department, the post office, slanted the inquiry in a different direction right at the start by putting in evidence a confidential blue book and suggesting that Sir Alexander King, secretary to the post office, be heard first. On the question of the goodness or badness of the contract itself, the committee uncovered much that was interesting. It emerged that the Polson system had offered to erect stations at a cost of about £36,000 less per station than the Marconi, and that the Admiralty itself had estimated a cost, if they were undertaking the work, at about the same as the Polson offer. But by a confusion as to whether their figure did or did not include freight charges, the Admiralty estimate had been put down at 10000 higher than it was. Nor was this the only confusion. When Sir Alexander King spoke of concessions made to the government by the Marconi Company, he admitted under cross-questioning that there was no written record of these concessions. He spoke of various vitally important conversations and was not able to produce a minute. Letters referred to were found to have been lost from the post office files. Further, it appeared that while most rigid tests were to be required of the other systems, the Marconi people had been constantly taken almost on their own word alone. Mr. Isaacs and Mr. Marconi both told us, said Sir Alexander King at one point, when asked whether he had any technical advice on a point of working. You will excuse me, said Mr. Harold Smith, if for the moment I ignore the opinion of Mr. Marconi and Mr. Isaacs. I ask you, who was the expert? Who gave you this information? Then, too, as to the terms. The government had proposed 3% on the gross takings. Godfrey Isaacs had held out for 10% and got it. Moreover, the royalty was to be paid as long as a single Marconi patent was in use at the stations. Considering that by the Patents Act, the government had the legal right to take over any invention while paying reasonable compensation, the provision which gave so high a royalty to the Marconi company was severely criticized. Again, the right was given to the Marconi Company to advise on any fresh invention that should be offered to the post office, which meant that any invention made by their rivals was entirely at their mercy. Naturally enough, the question was pressed home whether the post office had really sought the advice of its own technical experts. It transpired that a technical subcommittee had been called once, and had recommended a further investigation of the Polson system. The report of this subcommittee had been shelved, and the members never summoned for a second meeting. Early in January 1913, the Parliamentary Committee, against the advice of Herbert Samuel, asked for a special subcommittee of experts to go into the merits of the various wireless systems and report within three months at latest. It is not surprising that the new witness commented on this as a surrender of the most decided type where it proposes to do what Samuel himself clearly ought to have done before he entered into the contract. 
The report of this technical subcommittee showed that there had been a good deal of exaggeration in the first attack by the new witness on the worth of the Marconi system. If one single system was to be used, it was the only one capable of carrying out the government's requirements. But the subcommittee held that as wireless was in a state of rapid development, it would be better not to be tied to any one system. And they added that while the nature of the contract itself was not within their terms of reference, they must not be held to approve it. From its examination of the contract, the committee passed on to examine journalists and others as to the rumors against the ministers. And still, the ministers were not called. On February 12, 1913, L.J. Max, editor of the National Review, was being examined by the committee. Suddenly, he put his finger on the precise spot. Having expressed surprise at the non-appearance of the ministers, he went on. One might have conceived that they would have appeared at its first sitting, clamoring to state in the most categorical and emphatic manner that neither directly nor indirectly, in their own names or in other people's names, have they had any transactions whatsoever, either in London, Dublin, New York, Brussels, Amsterdam, Paris, or any other financial center, in any shares in any Marconi company throughout the negotiations with the government. Any shares in any Marconi company. The direct question was at last put. On February 14th, just two days later, something very curious happened. Le Matin, a Paris daily newspaper, published a story to the effect that Mr. Max had charged that Samuel, Rufus Isaacs, and Godfrey Isaacs had bought shares in the English Marconi Company at 50 francs, about two pounds in those days, before the negotiations with the government were started and had resold them at 200 francs, about eight pounds, when the public learnt that the contract was going through. It was an extraordinary piece of clumsiness for any paper to have printed such a story. Certainly Mr. Max had made no such charge. It was an extraordinary stroke of luck, if the ministers wanted to tell their story in court, that they should have this kind of clumsy libel to deny. And it is at least a coincidence that Rufus Isaacs happened, as his son tells us, to be in Paris when Le Matin printed the story. Samuel and Rufus Isaacs announced that they would prosecute and that Sir Edward Carson and F.E. Smith were their counsel. This decision to prosecute a not very important French newspaper, while taking no such step against papers in their own country, caused Gilbert Chesterton to write a Song of Cosmopolitan Courage. In the New Witness, Volume 1, page 655. I am so swift to seize affronts, my spirit is so high. Whoever has insulted me, some foreigner must die. I brought a libel action, for the times had called me thief, against a paper in Bordeaux, a paper called Le Juif. The nation called me cannibal, I could not let it pass. I got a retraction from a journal in Alsace, and when the Morning Post raked up some murders I devised, a Polish organ of finance at once apologized. I know the charges varied much, at times I am afraid. The Frankfurt Frank withdrew a charge the outlook had not made, and what the true injustice of the standard's words had been was not correctly altered in the Young Turks magazine. I know it sounds confusing, but as Mr. Lamel said, the anger of a gentleman is boiling in my head. The hearing of the case against Lamatin came on March 19th. As that paper had withdrawn and apologized only three days after printing the story, there was no actual necessity for statements by Rufus Isaacs and Samuel, but they had decided to answer Max's question, to admit the dealings in American Marconis, which they had not mentioned to the House of Commons. 
or rather to get their lawyer to tell the story and then answer his questions on the matter in a court case where there could be no cross-examination because the defendants were not contesting the case. Sir Edward Carson mentioned the American purchase at the end of a long speech, almost as an afterthought. Really, the matter is so removed from the charges made in the libel that I only go into it at all because of the position of the Attorney General and because he wishes in the fullest way to state this deal so that it may not be said that he keeps anything whatsoever back. As the Times remarked, 9th of June, 1913, the fact was stated casually as though it had been a matter at once trifling and irrelevant. Only persons of the most scrupulous honor who desired that nothing whatsoever should remain hid would, it was suggested, have thought necessary to mention it at all. The statement was not really as full as Carson's phrasing would seem to suggest. The court was told that Rufus Isaacs had bought 10,000 shares, but not from whom he had bought them, that he had paid market price, but not what the price was, nor that the shares were not on the market, that he had sold 1,000 shares each to Lloyd George and Ellie Bank and had sold some on their behalf, but not that these two had had further buyings and sellings on their own. It was stated for Sir Rufus and reiterated by him that he had lost money on the deal, the reason being that while he had gained on the shares sold, the shares he still had had slumped. It is difficult to see why Rufus Isaacs and later Lloyd George made such a point of the loss on their Marconi transactions. They can hardly have bought the shares in order to lose money on them, and their initial sellings showed a very large profit. Indeed, Rufus Isaacs' loss depended on his having paid his brother two pounds for the shares, and again upon the 7,000 shares he sold on the opening day being only partly on his behalf. And there was only his word for these two statements. If Rufus lost, he lost to his brother, who had been willing to sell at cost price, with whom he had a pooling arrangement, and who made an enormous profit. If Rufus lost, the loss remained within the family. A week after the hearing of the Matank case, Rufus Isaacs appeared for the first time before the Parliamentary Committee, almost five months after its formation. His problem was not so much to explain his dealings in American Marconis as to account for his silence in the House of Commons. His one desire that day in Parliament, it seems, had been to answer the foul lies being uttered against him, which he was quite unable to find any foundation for, quite unable to trace the source of, quite unable to understand how they were started. Obviously, his dealings in American Marconis could have no possible bearing on these rumors, so he did not mention them. I confined my speech entirely to dealing with the four specific charges which I formulated. The chairman, Sir Albert Spicer, suggested that one way to scotch the rumors would have been to mention his investment in American Marconis, because both being Marconis, you could easily understand one might get confused with the other. This question always drove Rufus Isaacs into a rage, and indeed he met all difficult questions with rages, which to this day, across the gulf of thirty years, seem simulated and not convincingly. Why had he not earlier asked the committee to hear the story of the American shares? I took the view that I had no right to claim any preferential position, and it seemed to me that it might almost savor of presumption if I had asked the committee to take my evidence, or any minister's evidence, out of the ordinary turn in which the committee desired it. All the same, he had once written a letter to the committee asking to be heard, but on consideration did not send it. During his examination, the element of strain between the two parties on the committee, which had been evident throughout the inquiry, was very much intensified. Lord Robert Cecil and the Conservatives courteously but tenaciously trying to get at the truth. 
the ministerialists determined to shield their man. There is a most unpleasing contrast between the earlier bullying of the journalists, who, after all, were not on trial, and the deference the majority now showed to ministers who were. Rufus Isaacs twisted and turned incredibly, but he did admit to Lord Robert Cecil that he obtained the shares before they were available to the general public, and at a price lower than that at which they were afterwards introduced to them. He tried later to modify his admission by saying that he had been told of dealings by others before April 17th, but he could give no details, and the evidence of the Marconi Company's broker, quoted above, is decisive. Two points of special interest emerged from this evidence. The first was that he had not told the whole story in the Matin case. He now mentioned that Lloyd George and Ellie Bank had sold a further 1,000 shares he held for them on the second day, July 20th, and went on to tell of the purchase of 3,000 shares by the same pair, the so-called bear transaction of May 22nd. The second was more unpleasing still. He admitted that he had told the story of the American Marconis privately to two friends on the committee. Messrs. Falconer and Booth, who had kept the matter to themselves and had, or at least appeared to have, continually steered the committee away from this dangerous ground. Rufus Isaac's son actually says that his father had informed Mr. Falconer and Mr. Handel Booth privately of these transactions in order that they might be forearmed when the journalists came to give evidence. On March 28th, Lloyd George appeared before the committee. Mrs. Charles Masterman gives an account of Rufus Isaacs grooming Lloyd George before the event. There was a really very comic, though somewhat alarming, scene between Rufus and George on the following Sunday. George had to give evidence on the Monday, the following day, and Rufus discovered that George was still in a perfect fog as to what his transaction really had been and began talking about buying a bear. I have never seen Rufus so nearly lose his temper, and George got extremely sulky while Rufus patiently reminded him what he had paid, what he still owed, when he had paid it, who to, and what for. It was on that occasion also that Charlie and Rufus tried to impress upon him with all the force in their power to avoid technical terms and to stick as closely as possible to the plainest and most ordinary language. As is well known, George made a great success of his evidence. C.F.G. Masterman, page 255. I cannot imagine why she thought so. Hugh O'Donnell's description in The New Witness of Isaacs and Lloyd George as they appeared before the committee accords perfectly with the impression produced by a reading of the evidence. While the simile of a panther at bay, anxious to escape, but ready with tooth and claw, might be applied to Sir Rufus Isaacs, something more like a rat in a corner might be suggested by the restless, snapping, furious little figure which succeeded. Let us compromise by saying that Mr. Lloyd George was singularly like a spitting, angry cat, which had got, perhaps, out of serious danger from her pursuers, but which caterwauled and spat and swore with vigor and venomousness, quite surprising in that diminutive bulk. Dastardly, dishonorable, disgraceful, disreputable, sulking, cowardly. Asked why he had not mentioned his Marconi purchases in the House of Commons, Lloyd George gave two answers. One, there was no time on a Friday afternoon. Two, I could not get up and take time when two ministers had already spoken. Why had he not asked to be heard sooner by the committee? He understood that Sir Rufus had expressed the willingness of all the accused ministers to be heard. Like Sir Rufus, Lloyd George mentioned that he had lost money on his Marconi transactions. The obstruction within the committee continued to the end. The question had arisen whether Godfrey had had the right to sell his shares at his own price or for his own profit. 
he had sold a considerable number of shares to relations and friends at one pound one shilling three pence whereas shares were sold to the general public at three pounds five shillings others of his shares he sold on the stock exchange at varying prices all high but were the shares his or did they belong to the english company if they were his he was entitled to sacrifice vast profits on some by selling at cost to his relations and to take solid profits on others by selling at what he could get in the open market but if he was simply selling as an agent of the company he had no right to make so fantastic a present of one lot of shares and was bound to hand over to the company profits made on the others he told the committee that the five hundred thousand shares had been sold to him outright but that he passed on forty six thousand pounds of profits to the company he said that a record of this sale of five hundred thousand shares to him would be found in the minutes of the english company the books of the company were inspected and it was found that no such minute existed lord robert cecil naturally wished to recall geoffrey isaacs to explain the discrepancy between his statements and the records the usual eight to six majority decided that there was no need to recall godfrey it looked rather as if the shares godfrey had sold to harry and harry to rufus at such favorable prices belonged to and should have been sold for the profit of the company on may seventh the committee concluded its hearings and its members were marshalling their ideas for the report but there was one fact for them and the public still to learn early in june they were recalled to hear about it a london stockbroker had absconded a trustee was appointed to handle his affairs and it was discovered that the fleeing stockbroker had acted for the still absent Ellibank, had indeed bought american marconi's forum a total of three thousand and as it later appeared these had been bought for the funds of the liberal party the comment of the times june ninth nineteen thirteen on the totally unnecessary difficulty which has been placed in the way of getting at the truth seems moderate enough end of chapter nineteen part one